There, there are notes, uh, not that you'd need them, but uh, there's just a little bit of an outline there in case you have something to jot down. And uh, I've, I've been faithfully teased a bit about the uh, title. It might be a little overdone, <laughs> but I don't know if the, the speech will uh, justify the title. But uh, the emasculation of husband love, pastoral responses to feminism, shrinking and twisting of the definition of masculine love in Christian marriage. That's our, our focus here for a few moments. Um, and just start with the question, is this a battle worth fighting? Does upholding the complementarian doctrine justify the conflict that it requires? Uh, considering that, God's design, that God designed men and women not only different from one another, but different for one another, which is, Andy's brought that out so ably here, uh, we would say the battle is worth fighting. It's worth fighting. It's God's gift to us, and we're fighting for that gift in some way. And I suspect that many of us are here because we believe that battle is worth fighting for our churches, for the life of our church, for the health of our church, and further trust that the married men among us believe complementarianism is God's gift to your marriage. And that's where I'm going to focus my attention here today. But it, it's, it's my suspicion, uh, my observation that a sizable percentage of husbands who worship in our churches each Lord's Day are not convinced this is a fight worth taking up. Not convinced that fighting to uphold complementarian belief and practice is a worthwhile battle. They're fine, maybe to some degree, the church defending that position. That's what the church should do. It's in the Bible. Uh, they're good with that. But they operate on a really different foundation at home as they relate to their wives. It seems no willful rejection of biblical teaching, but more thoughtless acquiescence to a feminized culture. I'm going to leave, and rightly so, the more global issues to Andy's handled them so well and continues to do so, but I want to simply here narrow in and kind of light a candle exposing a dark nook of potential compromise, I'm really observing with increasing alarm in Christian families. So if, if Andy's dealing with the global, I'm dealing with the minuscule here and drawing uh, on the help of others as we've, they've thought through these things. David Pallison from a counseling standpoint, C.S. Lewis and uh, several others, just drawing uh, ideas there coupled with my observation pastorally. It's that simple. But uh, in his book, The Four Loves, Lewis exposes ways in which good love can be subtly twisted into diminished forms of love and really end up suffocating relationships. So family love is good and romantic love is good and friendship love is good. They're all natural good gifts from God. But when one of these loves becomes ultimate, when it becomes idolatrous, when it is saddled with freight that it was never meant to carry... Then those loves corrupt and begin to really harm relationships between people. And let's just pause to rejoice here for a few moments in our salvation. Our salvation is found in the God who is love. The God of Scripture who moves toward us, who pours out what is best for us from an infinitely deep well of gracious goodness that betrays no need in Him. 
This artesian well of divine love never runs dry. It flows to us freely. It is perfectly pure and it always satisfies. The thinking of God's love, it is undiminished, free-flowing, righteous, and soul-satisfying. Our love is never going to match the quality of God's love, but his love remains the standard and it remains that for which we want to strive. And to say that, it's not a throwaway sentence. There are other inferior touchstones of love, other standards that are out there competing for our attention and striving faithfully to measure our love by God's love is an agenda that we have to continue to remind ourselves to take up. So note again uh, the standard of and the striving after the love of God that we see in the passage Andy read earlier and that we know so well. But Ephesians 5, just hear the words again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's the standard, as Christ loved the church. I'm always looking to that standard, always seeing that as the model. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. There's an agenda there. There's a process that is there. There's a way in which he loves to present her spotless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might be, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a kind of love there. There's an orientation toward love there that we are to pursue. So the standard, as Christ loved the church, and the striving after the imperative to love in this way. The concern I'm chasing here with us for a few moments is that the Spirit's call to this sort of husband love is in many Christian homes sacrificed on the altar of feminist expectations. We're influenced by our world, and there is a molding toward that orientation that we find in our world. I'd just like to address that here. First, a couple of qualifiers about this uh, heavy title. But it sets feminism up as the nemesis, and this is really only holding a place. It's for sake of argument. You could put other words in there, the flesh, a therapeutic society or something similar. So I'm not going to focus on feminism's role in the demise of husbandly love, other than to observe in passing that the guns of feminist theology are always trained on biblical love, on biblical masculinity. They're always there. In fact, radical feminism would preach that the very notion that manly love is a proper category distinct in some measure from womanly love, reveals a sexist scheme promoting the oppression of women. And Andy's hit on that very ably here. There, there would be that orientation, that thought that even talking this way, that there's a manly love, there's a womanly love, there's some, a, a, an expression of love that's distinct to them, is itself a manipulative abuse of power, would be the argument. But of course, Scripture teaches uh, that somewhat... Not entirely, but somewhat differing responsibilities are assigned to husbands and wives by God in keeping with his creative design. And we rejoice in that. So united by faith to Christ's death and resurrection, 
We now perceive that these complementary roles are calibrated to bless us and to prosper us. Therefore, our good, they are the gift of the Lord. So diminishing biblically ordered masculine love compromises God's sovereign design to prosper women. And we want to emphasize that and hold that idea. So the whole point of feminism there. And then emasculation, by, by no means saying, and again, this was brought out in Andy's previous lecture, but I'm by no means saying that husband love is twisted into a form of womanly love, which is inferior. Not saying that and, at all. I don't mean by emasculated acting like a woman as if that's inferior. I mean only to say not acting like a man. So, the, so what I'm applying here to men because of a, the focus of, of this seminar would equally apply to women following the same path, if I hope that makes sense. So back to the candle in the dark room. In our therapeutically oriented, egalitarian world, Christian husbands are pressed to calibrate their love to the spirit of the age. And, I, and, and what is concerning is as we see that happen, it seems that there is more and more a pulling away from a genuine husbandly love as God has designed it and has ordered it. And I see this in three areas. I'm just taking these as examples. They're interlocking. They're not mutually exclusive, and they're not. Uh, they're, many others could be added. But uh, first of all, defining love as affirmation. This is, I think, we're seeing. I think uh, those of you who pastor, who counsel, I, I, I have no question that you're seeing the same thing with some regularity. But a husband is counseled by a psychologized culture to accept his wife for who she is just as she is. Now it sounds very noble, sounds selfless, and it's not all off base. But it's, I love you as you are. You don't have to become something that you are not in order to earn my love and earn my respect. You are significant, you are worthy of my affirmation just as you are. A Christian husband can be led to believe that since he regularly affirms his wife's significance and worth, he is loving her as a man should love a wife. Honey, you're so talented, you're so beautiful, you're so valuable to our family. These types of ideas constantly expressed. She feels good, and so he labors to keep the positive comments flowing. And that's the sense of love. Well, let's analyze that for a moment. It's gloriously true, of course, that God takes us as we are. But more gloriously yet, he loves us despite who we are. He receives us because of who Christ is. And once savingly united to Christ, God's love is not fundamentally oriented toward making me feel loved just as I am. I think if we test that against what Scripture teaches, we just sound, it doesn't ring true that God is always reminding me that He receives me just as I am. God's love yearns for, it moves toward my transformation and sanctifying change in who I am, how I live. God wants to see this change. He works toward this change. And this brings us back to the whole agenda of Ephesians 5. The Christian husband is to orient his love toward the beautification and the purification of his wife's soul, not toward the mere affirmation that she is good as she is. 
This, this whole orientation takes us further and farther and deeper. Now, we're not saying, of course, that she, he's to relate to her with a critical spirit, a badgering disposition. Uh, there, there's not some systemic discontent that he is always exuding toward her in her relationship with him. Nothing of the like. But against the mere affirmation model, he is also to seek her growth, to seek her change. She is, Christian husband, your primary discipleship project. In the best sense of that term, to lead her on, to move her forward, to see her grow in Christ is a uh, biblical love. Such sanctifying love for her runs deep enough at times to cut across the grain of her innate longing for her husband's affirmation of her worth and her significance as it stands. There's something that moves him further so that sometimes oppose that in, the, in a gracious and loving way. But masculine love then will affirm and encourage her often, but it also carefully analyzes what God thinks of her. The love of the Christian headship then lifts a man's eyes to see not merely who she is, but who she, by God's grace, will one day become. And I think that really changes the relationship, that we're looking forward, we're looking with hope, we're looking with sanct to sanctifying grace every moment of our lives. And in this way, a Christian husband helps his wife break really free from the sluggish stupor of perpetual affirmation for the more invigorating air of anticipatory hope in her sanctification and her ultimate glorification. Because a man is loving her in that right way, this is where he's helping her to focus and where he is focusing, and it changes the relationship. It deepens that love. There are vistas on the path ahead, and he will not leave her to the smallness of mere perpetual affirmation. Chesterton in Orthodoxy breathes the spirit of this agenda when he says, how much larger life would be if yourself would become smaller in it? How much larger your life would be if yourself became smaller in it? You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played. And I could be wrong and you could differ. But I, I see evidences of this in increasing ways that there's this tiny plot of how wonderful you are. And I'm instructed to speak that way all the time where there's such a larger thing going on as God sanctifies us. Her husband's love helps her see that grand plot of her ongoing transformation into the image of Christ. And this agenda works off a much larger palette than simply affirmation. It has room for then gracious rebuke, for loving correction, for biblical edification, and for long-suffering hope in the midst of the trials of life. The second uh, illustration to define love as protection, uh, to define love as protection, this twisting and shrinking of husbandly love follows from the preceding, and it maybe goes something like this. As she speaks, she says, the affirmation I receive from my husband, and I'm receiving this consistently, that affirmation that I receive from my husband 
is the affirmation I am right to insist upon receiving from other people. If they truly love me, they will give me similar affirmation. They should validate my worth. They should rejoice in who I am. And if they do not, they don't really love me and thus they are against me. Husbands pressed into the mold of societal expectations respond to this desire by protecting their wives against anyone who would so victimize her by, validating, by failing to validate her significance as she expects and as he, in some sense, has led her to expect in their relationship. He further protects her by catering to every fear that she may have. There's a fear that's there. My job is to protect. My job is to help her away, is to help her, uh, in, in some sense, to acknowledge that fear. Well, again, protecting our wives is a, is a manly love. It is something that is very innate to the love of a husband. Protecting our wives is Christ noble. It's a Christ-like calling, which is so far in eclipse these days as to really, one trembles to question the very idea. However, and what I'm saying is that love is more than protection. The love of a husband for his wife is more than that. When a Christian wife suffers wrong, when she encounters fear, the love of sanctifying headship refuses to see her as a mere victim. The true love of a Christian husband will help her analyze the nature of her suffering and the nature of her fears, not simply protect her as an end in itself. It goes deeper, it goes farther, it looks up and looks long. So he'll help her answer the question from time to time. And I think he, he's been designed as a man to come uh, to work with her and help her in asking such questions, such as in the grand scheme of things, is this a big deal? Is this really, how, how important is this offense in the big scheme of things? How legitimate is this fear that you have? Let's think through that. So he's not just simply saying, you fear, I protect. Someone opposes you, I stand in the way. But he looks to her heart in a sanctifying way, discipling her to think through how big is this? Is this fear legitimate? Loving headship will help her then analyze not only what she has suffered, but also how she has responded to the suffering. And you see where it can get shortchanged there. If my sense is simply to protect her, as she suffered, I may only look at the source of the suffering and not look at her response to it and not help her to consider that. Maybe he should protect her from a particular fear, but maybe he should help her overcome a particular fear. And maybe God has designed for him to tackle that very project in her life in a sanctifying way. Maybe he should protect her from someone who has harmed her, and that may be his whole calling in love, but maybe her sanctification is found in helping her handle that offense biblically and seeing it from God's angle. So husbands can beat their chests in self-congratulation that they have protected their wives when what they have done is fail to encourage her spiritual growth by dealing well with offenses, by dealing well with with fears. Third idea, defining love as advocacy. 
in this twisting of husbandly love, he identifies whatever degree of good there is in any of his wife's desires and initiatives, then advocates for her to that degree. That degree. So look at whatever initiative is desired, uh, whatever her desires are, and I go to bat uh, for her in that. So, for instance, she wants to pursue a ministry in the church she's ill-equipped to handle, and he simply advocates for her, pressing a pastor or ministry leader to give her the go-ahead. He knows she wants this, and coached by our world to understand that advocacy is love itself, he simply supports it. Doesn't really think very long, perhaps, or even at all about whether this is a good idea, but simply stands as her advocate. He knows no other mode of operation. Or take another example. His wife decides she wants to take, part, uh, take a part-time job or wants to devote 15 hours a week to a nonprofit. Um, and without helping her think through the implications, he simply advocates for her. He simply supports. I am here to support you in what you desire to do. Or maybe she enters a heated debate with another woman and vents her spleen on social media. And protection uh, connected here too, but he just advocates for her. He takes her position. And uh, this, this other person has to be wrong because you believe that she is wrong. And uh, talking about this in social media, if that makes you feel better, then I'm here to support you in that. As opposed to the deeper love that asks, is this the best way to handle this problem? Is this really a problem? How do we go through this? That type of idea. So this husband sees himself as fighting for his wife. And he might even congratulate himself there, feel comfortable there. I'm, I'm fighting for my wife. But he sees himself as her advocate when in truth he's simply become the supporter of her desires with no thought of her sanctification, with no thought of what good may or may not be accomplished in relationship with others. So there's no question then why she believes that he loves her. There is a support of all of her desires. And we know, uh, and, and I'm just looking at this from the husband's angle, from the husband's standpoint, is true the other direction. We have desires that are not good desires. They seem good, and we do need one another to help us perceive if they are good or not. But a husband that is coached by a feminized world simply stands and supports and advocates, doesn't ask the question of where does this go? How am I helping her grow in Christ? Um, so I think the questions that need to be asked is, is my advocacy like Christ's advocacy? Again, going back to Ephesians 5, that's the standard. As Christ loved the church, is my advocacy like Christ's advocacy? He rescues me first not from my opponents. He rescues me first from my sin. He rescues me first from who I am uh, in disconnect from him. And yes, there is suffering. And yes, there are opponents. And yes, there are desires that you have. But what, how, how, is, how are we helping our wives in sanctification? He leads me not into all the paths that I want, but he leads me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He advocates before the throne of God for my sanctification. He does not back my every plan. 
And as a, as a husband, as the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the man, so he is to help her this way and to encourage her this way. He is a gift from God to her in this discipleship mode. Now, quick sideline, it may be that she knows more theology than him. It may be that she's a lifelong believer and a uh, faithful believer, and he's a fairly new Christian. This is going to look differently in the home of a, a pastor and in the home of, of this couple where he's just a recent convert. But I think even there, as a man begins to learn what is God's calling upon my life, how does he call me to love my wife, the, the nature of that love, the project of that love, by God's grace, he's being continually conformed not to the love of the world, but to the love of, of God. And in that way, though he may not be able to instruct her in anything she doesn't know biblically, he can give steerage and direction to her sanctification. Indeed, I would argue that because he is a man and now a believing man, that God has equipped him to do that in a unique way in his relationship with his wife, with this wife, with this woman, uh, in his providence, has that plan and that purpose. Um, I don't know where there's agreement or uh, could certainly be, all of this has to be qualified carefully, but there is, uh, what I'm aiming at here is the infiltration of an emasculated love that prioritizes affirmation, protection, and advocacy at the expense of sanctification. And I, I think that we are being schooled by our world to be nice. And that's, that's the main thing. If you're a nice husband, you're a loving husband. And I think that what, what subtly behind that is you are not to be a man. You're not to love your wife as God intends for a loving leader and head to love her. It's not simply about being nice. Now, we should be nice. We should be kind and, and gracious in all of our relationships with our wives, of course. But there's something deeper to this kind of love. That's what I'm driving at. This shrunken, twisted type of love says, I love you by making much of you and supporting and facilitating the desires of your heart. Again, there's, there's something in that that is, there's, a, there's pieces there of right, but that's where it ends. I love you by making much of you in supporting and facilitating the desires of your heart. Now I love you. Not necessarily. Biblical love says I love you by leading you away from sin and closer to Christ, preparing you to meet him in eternity. There's that future project. It's not just about the moment, but it's about where we're going, where you're going. And where we lovingly together can go as, we, as, as, as he serves as, uh, in a role of discipler in some, some measure, depending on their relationship and their maturity. Well, that being set, then, what can be done by way of pastoral response? And here I'd like to uh, really just draw upon your insights, and we'll talk about this as we have a few moments here together, but just a couple of ideas just to get us started. Um, I, I think there's nothing that can substitute to be promoting a, a masculine, biblical love, husband for wife. There's nothing that can substitute pastors, I speak to you directly, uh, for your relationship with your wife in the assembly. 
People watch that. They see that. It's subtle. It's little comments that are made. It's little positions that are taken. It's just interaction in a, in a very normal way in the flow of life. But do we demonstrate to the church that we love our wives as Christ loved the church? That's the big question we're, we always ask. But do we demonstrate that we are not blind to the shortcomings of our wives? Is there some demonstration that way? It's hard to do uh, as we want no part of appearing critical or discouraging our wives. We're certainly not seeking to expose them in some way and to harm their reputation or anything along those lines. But we can, take, we can come across as if I as a husband have no sense that my wife could ever be wrong. That's not helping anyone. It's, it's not modeling to the church what a, what a true and healthy relationship is. Uh, do they get the sense that you are seeking to disciple her, to point her to Christ? Are there tangible evidences of that in the way that you relate to her? Is there the occasional sermon illustration that reveals a deeper marital relationship than mere affirmation, protection, and advocacy? Does it, do, we, do we demonstrate that somehow? And I'm not sure how you do that. I don't have a plan, a game plan for it, but I think it's just being real. And if that depth is there, it, it shows itself. It evidences itself. Um, I, I pray by the grace of God this church always understands my deep reverence for Beth, my love for her. But I don't think they get the sense that I think she's perfect. I don't think they get the sense from her that she thinks I'm perfect. And I think that's good. I think it's healthy to say our, our relationship is two sinners with our sights set on eternity. We're not spending our time affirming one another day in and day out. We are looking to grow, to move forward. How, how does that look as people look at that relationship? But certainly more with more significance is the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. And here, of course, that whole therapeutic Jesus who meets your needs and mostly affirms your worth type of preaching needs to go away. But it, it, it's easy to go away if you stick with the text of Scripture because it's nowhere to be found. And as we just keep teaching biblical theology, we are demonstrating the way that Christ loved the church so that when we say that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church, it's clear how he loved the church. We're not twisting the gospel. We're not twisting passages of Scripture to say what our therapeutic world wants to hear, but rather we're teaching the systematic truth of God's Word and what the gospel is. As we do that, there's nothing that can substitute for that in helping us pursue true love. There should be rich theology taught, proclaimed in the church, sung by the church, and read uh, by the church as, as we are uh, promoting reading and reading the scriptures and just hearing the truth of his word and what true love is. I, when we hear that simple phrase, God is love, we spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out what that means. We'll, we'll never get to the bottom of it. We're never, it's not going to be reduced to some simple definition. But we're ever learning how God loves us and what genuine love is. And as the church is feeding on that, then it's feeding a different narrative of where love stops doesn't stop short as the world teaches, but it looks long to sanctification. 
And then I think thirdly, it's important to build up men in the church. We have to recognize that in the culture in which we live, there is a false narrative about what husbandly love is. Now, first of all, there's a wicked demonstration of what husbandly love is or lack of love in an abusive world and all kinds of messed up marriages and, and the like. But there's, there's sort of an acceptable uh, respectable husband love that the world teaches. And we need to help men realize that we're being pressed into that mold. We're, pr- we're being pressed into uh, obligations for how we are to love our wives, how we're to love our families. And we need to meet those obligations uh, the world is, is teaching. We need to help men realize that's going on and to spend time with them and talk with them, to direct them to build up their wives in the right way, in a discipling way, in the way that Jesus loved the church. Now, there's, there's different ways and means that we can pro- proceed, but the conversation has to be had, and the idea that every individual is free to define love and the expression of love the way that he chooses, we need to counter and just ask our husbands and ask our men particularly as we meet with them individually, as we meet with them in smaller groups, how are you loving? What is love? And I'm going to ask that question directly. How do you define uh, your love as a husband for your wife? But you're asking that in subtle ways, seeking to discern and understand and helping our men realize there's a deeper, higher love that we need to be pursuing as we love our wives. So, other ideas, maybe just observations that you have, um, uh, pushback uh, or supportive, or also ways and means that we can uh, help to, as a church, that we can work toward the right definition, a, a husbandly, manly definition of husband love. Any thoughts on that? Just observations that you've had uh, in council or... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the the cherishing aspect of it. Just it's not where the, you know, the the candle that I put up here, but it's an utterly essential piece and balance uh there. Uh, and I and I don't think any of this goes well without that. So, very good point. But I I think the um and others will have better ideas than I on this, uh, certainly, but I think the washing of water in the home, you're thinking particularly, the, the, the uh, cleansing there. First of all, I think is the spirit. What is the spirit that marks our relationship? Is, am, am I critical? Am I harsh? Am I disengaged? Am I always thinking about something else? Am I taking her for granted? Or is there a warm loving relationship that flows between the two of us. I think it's certainly essential there. Uh, I think, secondly, these are just coming to mind, but secondly, I think, is how we talk about the body of Christ. How do we relate to the church? And I'm talking to a group of pastors, and we know the temptation. We, we can talk about the church always in words of complaint, always of what's not going right. It's kind of a, a, this negative, heavy cloud that wherever we talk about the church things aren't aren't good and there's seasons where you know that's kind of how it goes but I think we should always be thinking about the how do I help her understand and and just be leading and encouraging and walking together in the important sanctifying work of the local church 
uh, and to, to look to the teaching of the Word, to talk about the sermons, to talk about the teaching, to talk about uh, the uh, women's Bible study and those types of things, that, that uh, corporate nurture, I think is an important piece. Obviously, the reading of Scripture together and prayer together, that I, I, I use the phrase often, but are we creating a warm spiritual environment in our church, in our, in our, in our homes? Uh, there, are, we, are we doing that? Are we pursuing that? And I, I, I don't hit home runs, but I, we just, the, the word is there. It's read and prayer. And, um, but I, and I'm probably hitting particularly here in just these short comments, the whole idea of, of counsel. And that's not, you sit down while I instruct you. Of course, it's just a give and go. I mean, we're counseling each other as we're flowing through any one topic. And uh, just, just talking honestly about life and thinking about life from a biblical perspective. Those are ideas that come to mind. Other ideas? Yes, Chad? Um, yeah. He's not the talker. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, the introverted husband. Uh, how do we deal with that? It, it, first of all, I didn't say, this is the obvious, it's a problem. It is a problem. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. But I mean, we, there are certain individuals, there are men that just don't like to talk. And uh, they str- that's, it's, it's a challenge. I think it's a handicap, maybe we could say, on some level, in, a, in an area of sanctification that he's got to work on. It's not verbiage. Uh, that's not necessary. But are you engaged? Are you with her? Does she know you're engaged? You, she may talk three times as much as you, but are you there or are you just like tuning her out like the, the Charlie Brown teacher, you know? It's just wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you're, I'm not listening to you. So there's a lot to chase there. Where's, are you really quiet in the relationship because you don't love her, you don't care for her? You know, there could be deeper issues like that. But I, for some guys, it's just a natural thing. They just don't like to talk. And I think we have to encourage them and press them. You have to take initiative. And even though you may not say as many words, you've got to speak. We need to just go talk to the pastor because he can communicate better than I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so in that case, I'm just repeating for everyone uh, to hear, but in, is, uh, what, can he repair to the pastor and get help there? Uh, I think that's part of what I'd said earlier about the life of the body of Christ. I, I think he needs to recognize I might need some more help here with, uh, with others and pastoral input. That's certainly legitimate. I mean, you want to see him keep growing and not become wrongly dependent on that. But, but for some men, that might be the best thing they can do is to, is to get others involved. And, and it may be a pastor, but it could also just be another godly couple where, they, where he strategically brings another couple in so that the conversation gets past the two of them and, and others can help think through some of these matters. I don't know, have an answer to it. I do think it's right you see it as, as a challenge, and some men need to be pressed. Here again, where we meet with men in groups, we can press the quiet ones and say, you, you, you know, there's, there's, you don't have to do it the way someone else does it, but here are some of the things, the benchmarks you have to be hitting for. Yes, sir. Uh, doctor, how do you combat that? I know that's a big question, but... Yeah, it, 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 just the problem of counsel where people say you've not had this experience so you can't understand. Again, just quick off-the-fly thoughts, but first of all, I, I make it... I'll just make it like personal, like I'm talking to someone and they're telling me this in counsel. 
I say there's absolutely no requirement that I've experienced what you've experienced. Uh, another is I always go to Jesus because so many of the things that they say that about Jesus hadn't experienced either. And I, I, I said I, the, the best counselor on earth for marriage is a single man. Uh, you've met him. Um, Jesus didn't experience marriage, but he's the best counselor on it in the universe. So uh, just taking that out, I, I think, and, and, then, and then also humbly to say, you're right, I don't understand your experience. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be there. And I always say quietly in my head, man, am I glad. You know, I, I, there's so much horror that people face uh, in, the, in the troubles of sin I'm glad I've not experienced that. But if I have to find somebody that's experienced everything, um, it's, that's impossible. Then another point is that someone experiencing this doesn't make them a good counselor. What makes someone a good counselor is not empathy and shared experience. It's the truth of God. If I'd rather get the truth of God from someone who is single and not a pastor to help me as a pastor and a husband than to find somebody that's telling me the wrong things that's, that's married and a pastor, right? I mean, if we just help people kind of think through that, um, they're, but I, let's say humbly, as when I'm hearing that, I know that they're saying I need somebody to understand me. And what I'm saying there is, there is someone who understands you. And I want to point you to him. I want to help you know what he's saying. I am a bridge. I'm not in this with you, but I'm here to point you to Christ. He does understand and understands better than you understand. And, and so just helping them to see that. I think that point it should not set us back. It's, it's, I, it, 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 I know how you feel sometimes in that spot. It's like, Ugh, yeah, I don't have a clue. Um, I've not been addicted to drugs. I don't know what that feels like, uh, but I know I can point you to my friend. Yeah, and he does. Yes, sir. I think that all of this, this is my thought, my, my opinion. I, might, I don't have a strong proof of it, but I've got the sense that there's just been a strong reaction uh, to our fathers and to our grandfathers and sort of the, the firm, decisive, my way or the highway um, and really mistreatment of women along the way and just kind of a sense culturally there's been, a, there's been an aversion to that. I, I don't think that's all bad. Uh, I think a lot of it uh, was wrong. Uh, I mean, it, it, that shift has taken place on a lot of other levels, too. It's not just husbands and wives, right? I mean, I, I remember things that teachers did to me in school uh, and to other guys in school that, you know, you, you just would be shocking to people to know those things happen. Well, they weren't good. So I think, it's, I think there's been a right move away from that uh, orientation. But what's happened, it's been replaced with uh, a psychologized, therapeutic, uh, I'm okay, you're okay, Carl Rogers type of uh, uh, receptivity to whatever you are, wherever you stand. And, and that has um, influenced, I think, the, the broader picture and how we're looking at, 
at um, how, what, what true love is. So yes, I think that some of the books you've mentioned and just that orientation, there's many that are schooled there and taught there. And, and this is where, again, the significance of the teaching of the church, uh, because people are going to buy those books, they're going to watch those seminars at home, they're, gonna, they're grasping for something, what is love, how does my marriage get recovered, uh, how do I improve, and they're going to, they, the sources are so, they're ubiquitous, so I, I think it's important that we as a church just keep speaking the truth and, and uh, pushing back against that, whether um, specifically or at least generally all the time. We've got to go. Our time is up.